Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I am confident that together we can rebuild our economy. That was Liz Truss on the steps of Downing Street, one year ago this week. 45 days later... I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. And while we were all focused on the consequences of the Premiership, you know, the crashed economy, the crippling mortgage rates, and a newfound national obsession with the exact shelf life of a supermarket lettuce... There was at least one person in Britain who had to be focused on something very different. Liz Truss herself. Because after she was turfed out from a job of a lifetime, she had to start thinking about what on earth she was going to do next. Her departure means she is now part of the largest collection of living ex-prime ministers that has ever existed. It is quite the club. When the curtain falls... It's time to get off the stage. I've been privileged to learn much about the very best in human nature and a fair amount too about its frailties, including my own. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. Unbelievably, there are now seven former prime ministers kicking around the country, tending to their gardens and wondering what to do with themselves. To put that into context, when Gordon Brown got into office, he had only three living predecessors to contend with. And because Britain is a bit weird, we're occasionally treated to the rather wonderful sight of all these former prime ministers getting together in one place to attend big events like a royal wedding or the cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. Remember, some of them, possibly all of them, really cannot stand each other. Um, And we had a disagreement, frankly. I mean, it wasn't a personal thing. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules or didn't understand what they meant and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10. Which was it? But for the rest of their lives, they all have to turn up to special events and exchange chit-chat and smile sweetly for the cameras. When you watch it on TV, it looks predictably awkward. So what the hell do they all talk about? I mean, it's like any group of people, you know, from people at primary school, they congregate with their friends. This is former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. He was sacked 38 days into Truss's premiership after his disastrous mini-budget triggered a financial crisis. As a long-serving cabinet minister, he got to go to events like the Cenotaph so he can give us all the goss. I remember Rishi Sunak talking to Gordon Brown and someone like Boris... 
he was not going to be necessarily best friends with John Major. You know, I remember John speaking to Nadim Zahawi. They're very interested in Kurdistan. So people gravitate to other people that they have interest or common bond or friendship. Is, is it awkward? <laughs> it can be. I've seen, you know, one ex-Prime Minister brush past another without so much as saying a word. It's not, it's not as if there's a, such a thing as an old Prime Minister's club that they all, you know, sit around the table exchanging, you know, warm anecdotes. It doesn't work like that. So how does it work? How do our former leaders spend their time? If the polls are right, there could be another member of the club that's not a club next year. Trust is earned, and I will earn yours. What can Rishi Sunak look forward to if he's booted out of office and into the real world at the next election? To find out, I spoke to the political historian Anthony Selden. I just think it's a shame that they're not using the potential for good more. The journalist Tom McTagg discussing Tony Blair. He has managed to build a life which is about as similar to being Prime Minister as you can get without being Prime Minister. My Politico colleague Annabel Dixon, who's been following Boris Johnson around the world. His lunch companions kept addressing him as Prime Minister. He was looking a little bit misty-eyed. Jeremy Lee, who founded a high-paying speakers bureau with top politicians on its books. I've not said a word about this, and I'm probably ill-advised to do so, but there was also the subject of money. And of course, Quasi Kwarteng, Liz Truss's former best mate. There's a numbness. You just get this feeling of kind of emptiness. From Politico, I'm Maggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm exploring what our former prime ministers do next and asking if there's something a little more useful they could be doing instead. January 1956, the French Riviera. Winston Churchill, now in his 80s, spent his days in bed. He got up only for lunch and dinner. When he wasn't horizontal, he gambled, hung out on yachts with dolphin-shaped gold taps and marble floors, and socialised with royalty and billionaires. His granddaughter recalls he wasn't happy during this time unless he and everyone around him was drinking champagne. Sounds awful, doesn't it? He, he was an amazing man, but he was a very disappointing post-Prime Minister. This is Anthony Selden, political biographer of British Prime Ministers, including Winston Churchill. But, you know, he swanned around on yachts in the Mediterranean, and I think you know, he was pretty much actually stumped out, and certainly his successor wouldn't have welcomed him carrying on with his great causes. So I think he was, you know, actually surprisingly disappointing. On the other hand, I think he deserved at the age of 80 just to enjoy a bit of sun and yachting and his cigars and his Paul Roger champagne and his painting. Yeah, we'll forgive him. To be fair to Churchill, he'd already been an ex-Prime Minister once. That if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Rather than quitting Parliament after his shock election defeat in 1945, he stayed on as leader of the opposition before going on to win back power for a final term. In 1955, he stood down for a second time and spent large portions of the final decade of his life on the French Riviera. According to one of his biographers, the last question he ever coherently answered was, do you want a glass of champagne? 
Fast forward 67 years. Former prime ministers are getting younger and younger, and most seem to have grander plans than frittering away the rest of their days on yachts. At 43, Tony Blair was the youngest prime minister since Pitt the Younger. David Cameron was younger still, and then a 42-year-old Rishi Sunak claimed the mantle last year. But in a less welcome entry for the record books, Sunak may now be in line to become the youngest former PM in modern history as well. The more time they're going to have after the prime ministership is over to, uh, while they're still young enough and healthy enough and energetic and vital enough, you know, there's enormous potential to do good. And while in the past, Anthony Selden told me, former PMs would stay on as leader of the opposition or even return to office, like Palmerston, Gladstone, Salisbury. Salisbury was prime minister four times in the 19th century. But since the Second World War, only two prime ministers have become prime minister again since leaving the post. Now, the parties, there's much less stability. It's much more vicious and competitive. Uh, Leading parties, the faction that you belong to will have often been the very faction within the party that is the one primarily responsible for turfing you out. So um, they're not going to be going back into politics. So they're going to do something else. They've often got got to make money. They don't tend to make as much money as they uh, thought they'd do off their memoirs. Um, And they've been used to a standard of living that requires them. And so they're going to need money because many of them want to send their children to private schools and mortgages and so on. So, you know, it's um, it's difficult for them to get that balance right. I just think it's a shame that they're not using the potential for good more. So what does a good former PM look like? So a good post-premiership boiled down to one single word is service. Uh, service to others rather than to oneself. And one can make a lot of money uh, and simmer in bit bitterness as a lot of post-prime ministers do. So it's an art. Margaret Thatcher, loathe her or love her, had an extraordinarily effective, important prime ministership. I mean, the last prime ministership really to live up to its potential, but a very disappointing post-premiership. She turned in on herself. She was bitter, disillusioned, drinking too much, plotting. She could have done so much uh, to build on the causes that she'd believed in. And then a mirror image of that could be John Major, who had a troubled premiership. But since then, he has got stuck into uh, good causes. I mean, yes, he has made money for him. Self, uh, but he's also continued to fight uh, and argue for causes that that, that that were important to him. John Major is one of the seven living former prime ministers. As Selden notes, he's made a lot of money, but without huge fanfare. Crucially, unlike other former heads of government, he's popped up sparingly with carefully targeted interventions on the issues closest to his heart. Brexit, Brexit, the European Union. Busy week for Brexit. After Major came Tony Blair. And I wish everyone, friend or foe, well. And that is that, the end. (laughs) I should say now, Tony Blair's life after number 10 is very different to the others. So he has managed to build a life which is about as similar to being Prime Minister as you can get without being Prime Minister. This is the journalist Tom McTague 
who's written extensively about Blair for the website Unheard. He has built uh, an organisation which does replicate Downing Street to some extent. He has a policy unit, which is the think tank. He has a delivery unit, which is the corporate affairs, the um, sort of Tony Blair associates, which has been called a kind of McKinsey for world leaders. He has a chief executive, which is like he's kind of Jonathan Powell, chief of staff. He has somebody who runs the organisation itself, which is like uh, he's Jeremy Hayward or he's Gus O'Donnell, he's private secretary. So he has all of these things and he has a box and then he has a morning meeting on a Monday, which is exactly how prime ministers work. Um, and look, this is how his life is comfortable. But it goes kind of beyond that with Blair. He still has a Georgian townhouse in London that looks like Downing Street. He has a uh, country residence near Chequers that looks remarkably like Chequers in its kind of Elizabethan grandeur. Tony Blair left Downing Street in 2007, at which point he set up a number of different charities and business interests, with the business side taking precedence. His consultancy made a lot of money, including from governments with somewhat dodgy human rights records. While the press attacked his newfound business links, as an ex-politician, he didn't really have to worry about his plummeting opinion ratings. But then came the 2010s and the rise of the populist. Jeremy Corbyn, Brexit, Donald Trump and all the rest. For the many, not the few. Take back control. Dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. That is some group of people, thousands. McTague thinks this is what shocked Blair into getting involved in politics again. At that point, he amalgamated all his business and charitable organisations into one huge not-for-profit organisation, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Originally, I started becoming interested in him because it dawned on me that he'd built a think tank that was bigger, really, than any other British think tank with American levels of funding, which if you ever go to you know Washington and look at the influence and power and wealth of these think tanks. They're just on a different scale to what we've got in, in the UK. McTague, formerly of Politico, has written a brilliant 5,000-word piece about the organisation, delving into the global influence and power that Blair still holds. The former Sedgefield MP's policy unit led the way on COVID vaccines, and the organisation is now attempting to combat disease outbreaks in Africa, among many other things. Blair has communication lines open, not only into our government and opposition, but also to countries and tech billionaires across the world. 800 people that that he employs, someone as much as $500,000, working across the world. You know, he's able to say to leaders of countries in Africa, oh, don't worry, I'll shift around a few of my staff in the region and I'll send them to you. You know, that's kind of amazing to say, oh, well, I, will, I will send you three of my people and they'll work in your presidential delivery unit. But the more I dug into it, the more it emerged that while the policy uh, institute is really fascinating and its influence in British politics is growing and, and interesting, actually it's all fueled by the consultancy arm, which is the business arm underneath. And... That's very opaque. I mean, do you think his motivations are partly just unfinished business? I think he has this Christian ethos uh, that drives him uh, a belief that you can't just kind of sit on your laurels. You have like this duty to, to, to keep going. I think the flip side of that, though, the more cynical take is that 
he really doesn't want to lose the influence that he had. Um, and so he wants to do good things in the world. He wants to be an important person. But the only way to be a, uh, to do good things, as he sees it, influential things, is to have power and influence. And to have power and influence, you need money, you need connections, you need staff, you need all of these things. And that takes a lot of time to, to do. And you need to then make compromises moral compromises even, to be able to amass that kind of wealth. And that's what he's done. He left office 16 years ago. Does it matter what he's doing now? When you're advising governments that you've built a relationship with as prime minister, and you're advising governments that are not uh, liberal, they're not democratic necessarily, they're tainted in some way, um, then it is reasonable to question that and to be a little bit uncomfortable about that. And then Blair is doing that, you know, across the world. Now, he will he will defend that and say, well, you have to have a relationship with these governments so that you can influence them. But is 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 that a role of a former prime minister to, to do that? Or is that not the role of the foreign office or or the, the British state somehow, the current prime minister? I think these are these are perfectly reasonable questions to answer. Do you feel like anyone else has done anything close to this? Or is this an isolated former prime minister? This is isolated. I think Tony Blair is unique in the scale of what he's managed to build. So Gordon Brown still wants to be influential and respected on the world stage. He got a, a job with the UN, which is something that Tony Blair did. So it's not like there is there are no parallels. You know, this is something Gordon Brown is doing, but Gordon Brown is doing it in a much less brash way. After office, Gordon Brown stayed on as an MP for five years. On a global level, he was appointed UN Special Envoy for Global Education and has published various books offering Brownite solutions to various global problems. On a local level, he recently co-founded an extended food and clothes bank for people in need in his former constituency of Kirkcaldy. Six years after Brown left number 10, David Cameron resigned after losing the EU referendum. He immediately resigned as an MP too, apparently so as not to rock the boat during Brexit. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. And I will do everything I can in future to help this great country succeed. In the case of David Cameron, he was, I think, 49 when he left. Tory MP, quasi quarting again. So you've got people uh, with lots of experience who are essentially not even, well, barely middle-aged, and they've got to figure out what they're going to do for the rest of their professional lives. So I think the concept that's new is that you have a, a, a prime minister who's been prime minister, and in many cases have the energy and the time and the, and the years to pursue another career. Um, and that that's something very new. And that can be quite tricky, right? I mean, we saw David Cameron getting into trouble over Greensill. I think it's a tricky one because you've got really a binary question. Right? Do you want to stay in public life? And if so, in what capacity? I think David Cameron has decided that he wanted a business career. But of course, there were problems with that, with the, the whole Greensill uh, issue. The relationship between Cameron and the failed financier has spawned eight investigations and put into question the very nature of the ties between politicians and their commercial interests. He got in trouble, you may remember, when he lobbied government ministers via WhatsApp on behalf of the soon-to-be-collapsed finance company Greensill Capital making millions in the process. Well, I was paid an annual amount, a generous annual amount, far more than what I earned as Prime Minister. He later accepted he should have behaved differently, 
and used only the proper channels. This is a painful day. Cameron waited three years after resigning to publish his memoirs and has stayed largely quiet since. We can only assume he's now spending his days in his £25,000 shepherd's hut down the end of his garden. Cameron's successor, however, did stay in public life after her own stint in number 10. Theresa May has remained an MP, popping up in the Commons regularly, sometimes even to savage Boris Johnson. They had a right to expect their Prime Minister to have read the rules, to understand the meaning of the rules, and indeed those around them to have done around him to have done so too. Next week, her new book comes out, The Abuse of Power. She has written about institutional cover-ups like the murder of Daniel Morgan and the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. Writing books is one of the ways that former heads of government can make money after departure. Book advances range from 400 grand for Gordon Brown to 5 million for Tony Blair, which he donated to charity. A lot of them believe Anthony Seldon. what Churchill said, that I'm going to come out of this uh, or write in history because I'm going to write it. A lot of them think that they're going to set the record straight with their memoirs. You know what? No one set any record straight with their memoirs. Delusional. Prime Ministers, future prime ministers listening to this, don't think anyone's going to think any different of your record because of what you write. Some can think worse because they're often too self-justificatory. So my advice would always be to a PM writing their memoirs, you know, just be, you know, admit your mistakes, admit what goes wrong, you know, big up, uh, don't narrow down on it. But, you know, they do find it difficult. It's bruising. Speaking of people unable to admit their mistakes, after the break, we'll hear about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and another post-Downing Street money-making scheme. Though not everybody, it seems, wants to help line the pockets of an ex-Prime Minister. And as he left, I turned to him and said, but I want you to make one promise. Please do not give our number to Liz Truss. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Downtown Dallas, a well-heeled part of town. The kind of place where you don't park your own car. Up on the 17th floor of a soaring tower block, there's a private members club with floor-length windows. One Monday in May, a paunchy, middle-aged Englishman with a familiar shock of blonde hair arrived at the club for lunch. When he walked in, he was greeted as Prime Minister. 
one thing that that was very amusing was his lunch companions kept addressing him as prime minister, not realising that the Brits don't indulge their former leaders in the way that Americans do in calling their heads of state president forever. Um, and, and I have to say, I think he really quite enjoyed that. What was his expression while people were calling him prime minister? I think he was looking a little bit misty eyed, but um, maybe I'm using a bit of poetic license. <laughs> this is my Politico colleague, Annabel Dixon who you may remember from last week's episode. Annabelle, among her many talents, is an expert Boris watcher. And earlier this year, she managed to track him down to this exclusive little lunch event in the heart of Texas. We got a tip off that Boris Johnson was going to be in Dallas speaking at this private lunch. Um, So basically, it was a lunch of Republican donors, politicians, business leaders. There were about 25 there. And he was invited by this think tank. Basically, they wanted him to go into the Republican heartlands in the run up to the US presidential election to try and shore up support um, for Ukraine among sort of increasingly war weary US Republican ranks. It's been a year since Boris Johnson left office. In that time, he's continued to lobby for Ukraine. He's done high profile interviews on the topic, as well as traveling the world to make speeches like this. This war can only end, must end, shall end, will end with the victory of the Ukrainian people. He even went back to Ukraine to see Volodymyr Zelensky. Rishi Sunak insisted he was supportive of this visit. He does see it as very much part of his legacy. And I think everything that we've read about since he left office it was obviously something that he did feel very passionately about and he had a very close personal relationship with Zelensky and was obviously kind of very moved by what was going on in Ukraine. When I was speaking to his team there, um, I was asking about, you know, how, how it came about. And I think it was tagged on to other speaking engagements. So he was off to Las Vegas after Texas where he was going to make a lot of money doing a speaking engagement. He was making money elsewhere while he was in the US, while he was doing that particular lunch. So he wasn't paid for that speech. But as Annabelle says, soon after he was jetting off to a more lucrative affair. Because since leaving number 10, Boris Johnson, as you probably know, has been busy making money. Lots of money over six million pounds. Because apart from writing memoirs and advising dodgy governments, there's another way ex-prime ministers can make some cash. My name is Jeremy Lee. I founded uh, what has become the country's biggest speaker bureau. JLA Speakers, founded by Jeremy Lee, represents top former and current politicians, as well as a load of celebrities that I probably should have heard of. He's our expert guide into the usually shadowy world of highly paid speaking engagements. He's also recently retired, which means he's now gloriously indiscreet. Former PMs have certainly made money on the circuit since Churchill's time. So we saw an opportunity and over time um, very much became known for providing speakers for audiences who didn't necessarily want to listen to them. Lee says, although he saw an opportunity for the speaking circuit in the UK, it's always been the case that most former premiers make their money outside of the country they served. So um, Thatcher made her money in America. Clinton made his money outside America. Uh, Gorbachev, uh, who we worked with several times, 
um, you know, even before they had much of a much of a market in Russia and beyond, uh, was of no interest there whatsoever. So traditionally, they make their millions slightly out of our view, simply where the money is. That's so interesting. So is that sort of on purpose? People don't want to make money in their own country or is it because their own country aren't that interested in them? Sometimes both. George Osborne, I appreciate this, is supposed to be a conversation about prime ministers, um, but George Osborne told me that um, he wanted to do engagements in the US. He may not have used these exact words, um, but pretty much because they were below the radar. I think, I think George had possibly forgotten about the internet at that point. But um, um, yeah, there's a preference and also a market. I, I did, I don't know whether I should reveal this or not. I had discussions with Johnson's team after he uh, left office uh, because we had represented him for many years before, but also in the time between the Foreign Office and Number 10. They said that uh, he wanted to do uh, no more than 20 engagements in the first year, 75% of which should be in America. At which point I told him that actually, um, although he could be represented by anywhere in the world, then it did make sense for him to sign to an American agency. Just see how fair I can be. I've not said a word about this, and I'm probably ill-advised to do so, but there was also the subject of money. And um, I was asked how I felt about uh, guaranteeing a certain figure. And I explained that that's not really how agencies work. Agents' motivation, if you like, their incentive, is the commission they will earn to um, uh, pay money up front. Thoughts flash through my mind, obviously, um, like, would you trust this man? I decided that I would not guarantee a figure up front because it is not how I wished to do business. In February of this year, Boris Johnson did declare a £2.5 million advance arranged by the Harry Walker Agency in New York. Is he the one that people are most interested in hearing from? Do you know who gets the most interest? We haven't looked after any prime ministers um, from this country for precisely the reason that um, their commercial opportunities are without exception abroad. Um, I did have a chat, a lovely chat with David Cameron, who I liked enormously, um, again shortly after he left office. And um, I went to Oxfordshire and I said, um, thank you very much for seeing me. And he made me a cup of tea. And, and I said, you know, thanks for spending the time. He said, so it's pretty gossipy, isn't it? Is that what one's supposed to do on podcast to gossip? Jeremy has clearly listened to Westminster Insider before. He said to me, um, so no, no problem at all. He said, um, the only thing I have to do today is take my daughter to Pony Club. And I just thought about the enormous, let's call it a difference rather than a fall, in weeks from having every moment of your diary full to having to remember the time to take your daughter to Pony Club. There are so many former prime ministers now. And I do wonder whether people are actually a bit like, oh, God, another prime minister. Does it sort of devalue everyone? No, I don't think it does. 
politicians, by the way, this isn't just prime ministers, but any politician um, going on to the speaker circuit, they, they always worry about their shelf life. Prime Minister of the United Kingdom sort of ticks the corporate celebrity box and the status box. And sometimes it doesn't matter hugely. I mean, it has a bearing on the level of fees, maybe, but it doesn't really matter how good we think they were in this country. What do you think of former prime ministers? Do you feel like they seem a bit lost after office or do you feel like they're sort of excited about finally being able to make some money? Well, David Cameron was certainly lost. Um, And I don't mean that unkindly. I think it was all too raw. Um, Our conversation probably happened a bit sooner than it than it than it should have done. Um, I I don't think I'd be standing out by saying that Johnson uh, would have been thinking about his earning potential after Number Ten, well, 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 well before he entered Number Ten. Never mind while he was at Number Ten. I imagine it was always somewhere in his mind. Jeremy Lee met Kwasi Kwarteng after the latter was sacked as Chancellor last year. I mean, it, it, it really was fun. And Kwasi, if you're listening, um, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our meeting. There are one or two things I remember from it, like um, your desire to share the lessons of your um, time in number 11 with the corporate world. At that point, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we all knew, maybe you did, but I'm not sure we all knew what the lessons were. Anyway, um, I expressed an interest, but with eyebrows still somewhat raised. But I thought this is, you know, this is a, um, a, a likeable person who is going to be able to engage with an audience. But what the market would have been, I am not quite sure. But I said I was interested. And as he left, I turned to him and said, but I want you to make one promise. Please do not give our number to Liz Truss. So far as I can tell, he abided by that request. And why did you not want Liz Truss to have your number? Shall we move on to the next question? Quasi? Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I mean, Jeremy's a good guy. And I'll probably speak to him again. Um, we had a very good conversation. I think that, you know, time settles. Um, and I think even now, you know, years passed, people are, are moving on, people are looking towards the next election. Now, I don't know what's going to happen at the next election, but if there is a change of government, which people are suggesting is likely, then the, the conversation will be different. So, um, it, you know, and you've got to think in sort of five, six, seven year, you know, more strategically, and I think that people like Liz Truss and others will find a voice. They will find a role. Um, she's already trying to do that. She's already doing that. Liz Truss is already doing that. Since leaving office, the UK's shortest-serving prime minister has visited Washington, Tokyo and Taiwan. She met senior members of the Taiwanese government and made some punchy remarks on China. So when it comes to China, a failure to act now could cost us dearly in the long run. I think she's very hyperactive. She's very um, busy, very focused, very driven. And despite Jeremy Lee's reticence to represent her, she's been paid handsomely in exchange for her speeches. She's also set up a think tank working on how to get the economy growing, which, of course, you'll remember went really well last time. She's not been one to 
hang around and reflect. She sort of, you know, rather charges ahead. Um, and I wasn't surprised. You know, she's speaking up passionately on issues that are of great concern to her. But with Liz Truss, I think it was Caroline Noakes that said a period of uh, silence would be helpful. You Look, I'm not here to criticise her. I think, I think she's got her style. She's very vocal. She's always on the front foot. Uh, and she moves very fast. Um, and in a way, that was one of the problems we had um, with her budget. But, you know, she'll, she'll bounce back. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure she won't be leader of the party ever again. But she'll have a voice and an important role to play. Kuateng is philosophical about the abrupt sacking which ended his brief career as Chancellor. Truss, of course, was gone just six days later. I mean, my issue with her was that, having been bold on the entry, she, I think, for me, it was a total capitulation at the end. And I think it, I felt let down, frankly. Um, and it was obvious to me that once she'd sacked me, she, was, she wasn't going to last very long. But have you talked about to her about it since? I mean, no, no. I mean, I haven't. You wouldn't. Uh, um, haven't raised it. I mean, we, we've talked about other things, but I, I think the swift implosion was extraordinary, um, and I think people are going to ask that question for a long time. You know, why did someone who had won the uh, leadership quite decisively? I mean, it was a clear margin. How did she implode and end her career in seven weeks as prime minister? It's a it's a great question. It's striking that not a single post-war prime minister has left office at a time of their choosing. The lack of French or American-style term limits mean our premierships do not reach a natural conclusion. Our leaders leave office because of ill health, because their party decided it was time, or because they lost an election or referendum. I think that's the nature of uh, political life generally. So I think it's a job that people give up very reluctantly on the whole. And does that make people behave a bit strangely afterwards? I think so. I think what, what I can't try and convey enough is these people, political people, but I think particularly people who get to the top, they're kind of adrenaline junkies. You know, they, they enjoy the challenge. It's like watching or being involved in a, a kind of action movie yourself, um, to, not to trivialise it, but, you're, you're, you know, you're right at the centre of events. You're, you've got a lot of authority. You get to decide things. For some people, that's extremely, not only challenging, but incredibly rewarding. And then for that all to stop, is I can see why they want to get back. I can totally see why Tony Blair, I don't think people will have him back, but I totally understand why he wants to come back. Do you just feel sort of nothingness <laughs> after it stops? I think there's a numbness, and then there's, you just get these empty, this feeling of kind of emptiness. So, because, you know, if you're, and you've got to remember that for a lot of people who are right at the top, they've been thinking about this for decades. They've been, they've been thinking about, you know, beginning, becoming an MP, getting into government, uh, maybe getting into cabinet, you know, all of that. They've been, they've been on this road, on this journey. And then once you're out, it's over. And so there's a kind of feeling of emptiness. I've seen it on there, and you can see it in their faces sometimes. They're just, they're just completely bewildered. Um, and then once you've got off the other end of the escalator, what next? Um, and I think a lot of people, and more people in the future, will wrestle with that. And do you feel like that? Well, no, I think, I think you know, I held high office. I really enjoyed that. Um, it's, it's a great feeling. It's a great honour. It's incredibly interesting. Um, very nerve-wracking as well. Um, but I think I've always tried to be a bit more balanced, all I'm saying is that I think for people who, for whom this is the be-all and end-all, 
it, it can, and you're there. I mean, I saw this in Gordon Brown. You know, he'd spent years. You know, he was 10 years as a chancellor, but before that, he'd been 14 years as an MP. Before that, he'd been sort of 10 years as an activist. You know, he was a Labour man through and through. And then all of a sudden, he was out. I think it was difficult. I mean, I remember I was the first parliament I was in, 2010, 2015. Um, he was still an MP. I only saw him maybe three times in those five years. And I, I, and I can see why. You know, he was, he was just, he was trying to find himself. He was, and then, of course, he stepped down and he's, and he's now finding causes that he, that he can be passionate about. But it takes time. Do you sort of feel sorry for former prime ministers in a way? Yeah, I do. I do. I, absolutely. I think it's, you know, people, the public might say, well, they have all these drivers, they get all this money, they get big pensions, they, all of that. They're looked after and they are materially. But in terms of their sense of purpose and what they want to achieve... Um, I think there is an emptiness after a big career. In many cases now, people are leaving that office when they're in their mid-40s, early 50s. And that's difficult, I think. I think adjusting from having been prime minister, let's say the age of 46, 50, uh, to then having a purposeful career in your 50s and early 60s, I think that's challenging. It's pretty hard to feel sorry for former PMs. They do get security paid for by the state and a large chunk of taxpayers' money each year to set up a private office. Book deals, speaking opportunities, money is literally not an issue for them. But for people who've held the most powerful job available in public service, it would be surprising if money alone satisfied their obvious and ongoing ambitions. The big change this century, as you heard Anthony Selden say, and I heard everyone say, is their ages. There are now essentially a load of highly experienced people who've left Downing Street in their early middle age and who are struggling to accept that their part has been played. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like we are unfair on prime ministers in that we have no formal role for them. Tom McTague again. I think we also have a similar kind of expectation of what our prime ministers should do. Like what is a kind of dignified thing for a prime minister to do? which is really we don't want them to earn money. We want them to head up a charity and just be kind of dignified. And I guess that was what the House of Lords was there for. Mrs Thatcher was able to to do that. And that kind of worked, although she was obviously accused of being a a backseat driver, uh, which she she sort of evidently was. That hasn't been chosen by any, uh, any of her successors. Uh, and they're all looking for ways to to make their post premiership life work. I think I, I almost feel like it's a it's a something that the state or the public as a whole we could come up with something better than what we've got. So the big difference, of course, with the US is the US is also head of state. Here's Anthony Selden again. They're all called president, and they have been the highest representative of their country in their time. So there's a kind of dignity and they have their presidential museums and libraries uh, and they, they loom much larger in American life than the British Prime Minister. In Britain, they do get some state support in managing the fact that they do have an ongoing uh, role in public life. I wouldn't be in favour of formalising that any further but I do think they have vast, vast underutilised potential. It does tend to mirror, uh, not always, what they were like in the office. And if in the office they were very self-centred, very trivial, uh, involved in party political, um, overtly political, petty issues, 
well, you know, it's so petty. We don't do enough to train our leaders in the dignity of being a leader at a high level in a way that, uh, uh, not always, but um, for example, uh, the military does uh, much better. But they could have much more of a role. Again, the American example is instructive. Famously, Jimmy Carter has devoted his post-presidential life to tackling infectious diseases in Africa, saving literally millions of lives. And in 2009, then-former President Bill Clinton was sent to North Korea to negotiate the release of two American journalists taken captive. So I remember Clinton, kind of very stony-faced, stood in North Korea. So he was playing a kind of role for the US state in his capacity as a a former president because he had the gravitas to be able to stand with the North Koreans which is what they wanted they wanted what they wanted the picture uh, so he was performing a duty they still have a certain power and we saw it with the Queen's funeral where they there are duties attached to former prime ministers still that they we expect them to attend certain state functions because they became prime minister that's not there's nothing in our constitution that says they have to do that that's just something that has that has arisen. So I do wonder whether you could build that out somehow. You have functions, you know, as former prime ministers that we expect you to do. That that comes with the the job. Once you've once you've done it, you have to do that. Like you have to go and sit on a House of Lords Select Committee. That that the, I don't know, royal commissions, these kind of things. You know, that is that is part of the part of the job. What should former prime ministers do next? The most popular former prime ministers seem to be the ones who remain public servants, who try to help society, and who are not seen to be profiting overtly from their position. Even Kwasi Kwarteng, a Tory, named Labour's Gordon Brown as one of the best ex-heads of government. But what's difficult, and getting more difficult, is the former PMs who leave office and enter the business world, using connections they made in office. Rishi Sunak is widely believed to want to head to California if he loses next year, and get involved in the tech industry. Some fear that as the former PMs get younger and younger, the job becomes one that you learn from and make connections in before you go on to your final career or to make a load of money. Let's call it the Nick Clegg path to California. That might suit the politicians, but it evidently sits less well with much of the general public. Maybe we'd all be happier if they just decided to do a Churchill and head off to the Riviera. Thanks for listening to this episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, please follow us, leave us a nice review, or even share it on social media. My handle is at Agnes Chambray. My producer this week was Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. But before you go, Alva's here. Hello, Alva. Hello, hello. I loved the episode. Thank you. In particular, loved Tom McTague on Tony Blair. And I think it was fascinating, wasn't it? The way he just can't let that prime ministerial life go. I have actually been past his Georgian town house and it does look like Dining Street. Ooh, okay, well we should go there on An a... improvement on Dining Street. <laughs> we should go there on a Westminster Insider day out. What have you got coming up for us next week? So, for next week... Listeners will remember that as part of our Back to School episode, we had a little bit of a look ahead to one of the by-elections that's coming up this autumn. 
And so I'm going to I'm going to do a deep dive on one of them, going up to Rutherglen and Hamilton West to meet the candidates, because this is really shaping up to be more than just an insignificant by-election. And this is really the battle for Scotland. And so it's going to be an indication of how the SNP are doing after all of the drama over the past year and also whether Scottish Labour have sufficiently recovered to win back the number of seats that they would need to win a majority at the next election. I'm really looking forward to it. 